Hi everyone, this is Terry Anderson with Digging Through Dominoes and I have a fantastic guest for you today. If only I remembered how I met her. Things would be great. <laughs> this is Saskia Hotstetler. Did I say that correctly? Yep. Hotstetler Lippy. And she's a psychiatrist in the Portland area. Psychiatrist and wounded healer. I love that term, wounded healer. And she has a deep understanding of the human psyche and the forces which shape all of us from a young age. And as a mother, she believes that we owe it to our children to fight for a world in which they can have hope. I was on a town hall, a coin town hall. Afterwards, this woman comes up and says, hi, Terry, do you remember me? Which immediately puts me in the deer in the headlights. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. And she said her name and I was like, yes, I know you, but I was connecting her to Joshua, but I think we might've figured it out. Mm -hmm. Well, I yeah. knew right away, Terry, that, that I had met you on your mental health journey, but it threw me for a loop when you remembered it differently, mm -hmm. which made me question my memory. We're gaslighting yeah. each other. No, it wasn't gaslighting. It was, it was honestly like, I've been in practice now 18 years and, and, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm a mother of two. Uh -huh. And so I honestly thought maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Like not, not in a gaslighting way, just in a, like, I don't trust my own memory way. That's with me. And I think since I had Joshua with me that night and I was so focused on him and his journey that I thought I had met you through him. I've met so many people through my son, but I think what you said, tell, tell everyone what you said earlier, what you think, because I think that's more likely. I do too, but I want to set the context for people who didn't see the town hall. Terry, oh, yes. you, were, you were talking about Joshua's death and that yes. town hall from, from opiates and mm -hmm. that he was on the street, laying on the street, probably deceased for 36 40 hours, hours is what the timeline shows. Right. And, and for your guests, like Terry had actually brought his ashes to the studio. So at the time that you were telling the story, there was not a dry eye in the studio. And, you know, part of what I was reflecting on was just that I had, I had known you when Joshua was, was alive. So I had no idea that he had right. passed. So I was also in, in kind of in shock about his passing and how, you know, part of why I became an activist is about stories like this. Mm -hmm. um, because I just couldn't sit in my office anymore in downtown Portland while I knew that this kind of suffering is going on right outside my front door. Yeah. And so I actually think I met you on your mental health journey. I think that you had been hospitalized and you'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and mm -hmm. you came to me and said, Oh my God, they just told me I had bipolar disorder. And I said, I need to get you to the expert in that. And that's how I got you to your current psychiatrist. That's what I think that, but you know, I could you know, be wrong. That makes so much more sense because when I was misdiagnosed in 2008, that's when the ACA came into play and psychiatrists and therapists were jumping ship. And so I was, that's right. I, I can't even tell you how many psychiatrists I saw from 2008 until I 
landed with my current psychiatrist and you must have been the one that sent me that way. Well, I think, I think what, you know, what I've learned from my practice with bipolar disorder is that a lot of women are misdiagnosed. Yeah. Um, including the other way where women who have bipolar disorder don't get diagnosed with bipolar for you. It's the opposite way. You got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but don't have it. Right. So it's kind of one of these terms that gets thrown around a lot, kind of like borderline personality disorder, where when I hear it as a psychiatrist, I don't know whether the person has it or not, because I don't trust that diagnosis when it's, when I don't have evidence of it. Right. Um, Cause it's one of those paper diagnoses that can follow people on their chart and, you know, they can get it said about them and it's never been true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the What's weird for me is when I found out, when, when my doctor said, you don't have bipolar disorder, it took him about a year of meeting with me weekly to tell me, I don't think you have, or no, he was very specific. You do not have bipolar disorder. I think you have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, right. Which is something that they don't go off of here in the States. It, it's PTSD. I guess it's not in the DSM-5 yet. Well, develop, what he's calling complex PTSD, like I sort of understand to be developmental trauma is another mm -hmm. term for it. So meaning your PTSD started earlier in your childhood. That's why I say in my, in my bio on LinkedIn that I like to think about it from early childhood on because so many people that have early childhood trauma don't think about it as trauma because that's all they know. <laughs> well, exactly. It's my normal. Exactly. And how much of that is pre-verbal? You know, before you can retain those memories, you have somatic memories that are just helping push everything along. And, you know, my first, the first memory I have of my mom, I don't know if I told you about this or not, but the very first memory I have of my mother and the is her, her telling me I was in the backyard, Midland, Texas, and I wanted to come in the house. It was hot. It was middle of summer. There were, she had locked the sliding glass door. I was about three years old. It's like, mom, I want to come in. I want to come in. And she wouldn't let me in. And I'm begging and pleading and crying, mom, let me in, mom, let me in. And she opened the door just enough to put her face out. And she said, if you ask me that one more time, if you do not shut your mouth, I'm going to put you in the trash can in the alley. And I'm like, um, I'll tell them to bring me back in. And just really contemptuously, she said, they don't speak English. Oh. I just went and sat and cried. And so that tells me if that's the first memory I have of my mother, and then I have no pictures of her holding me or with me, it it's just, it's weird. And it took me a long time to realize I can still love my mom, but understand her flaws. So I yeah. think that would kind of fit in with what you're talking about is early childhood trauma. 
I mean, I would so love to see this conversation shifted, like in, you know, in my field Mm -hmm. to a more patient centered approach of like, what is it, what is it like to heal (laughs) from that kind of trauma? You know, because that's another word. That's why I put healer in my bio. Also, that's another word we don't use a lot in psychiatry, Mm -hmm. like healing. How does healing happen? Guess what? It's like, it has to be determined by the one who needs the healing. Right. Right. It's self-determined. No, nobody can prescribe how you heal. You can't, you can't just write that on a notepad. (laughs) And you know, one thing when you're talking about, it has to be self-determined when you're misdiagnosed and you're put on antipsychotics and mood stabilizers, you're a zombie. Mm -hmm. And then you, that stunts everything. You can't feel anything. And I had to get off of all of that before I could get on that road to healing, which took years for me to even admit that I didn't have the perfect childhood. It was normal to me. But you're right. right. You know, Bessel van der Kolk has a, or I know it's, um, I know I was telling you about this. Gabor Mate has an example of that in his, in his um, recent book, The Myth of Normal, where he talks about interviewing somebody in jail who, who um, you know, had committed a violent crime. And he says something like, well, what was your childhood like? And he said, well, I had a great childhood. And then goes on to tell some horrific story of abuse. And, you know, and yet he thinks of that as a good childhood, right? That's part of the problem with complex PTSD is that we, we have trouble acknowledging to ourselves, we, we don't, how can we compare the difference? How can we know that our normal isn't really normal? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very hard, it's very insidious and it's very hard to come to, you know? Um, and I've worked with a lot of patients over the years who have only very slowly come to the realization that their childhoods were far from ideal. Yeah. It, I was going to ask you, do you think in your professional opinion, um, that toxic shame is part of that? Oh my gosh. Yes. In not saying, Hey, my parents weren't perfect because you were shamed your entire life. Yeah. And so much so that a lot of people who have toxic shame push it. Shame is one of those. I mean, Brene Brown has been wonderful about Mm -hmm. raising awareness about this because shame is one of those emotions we do not like to feel. Mm -hmm. And so we push it away. We do not want to feel shame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look at the rates of drug use in this country, the rates of alcoholism, you know, the rates of addiction, I mean, this is something that Gabor Mate is bringing so much awareness to is like, that's driven by something else. Right. Right. And a lot of that is, is this phenomenon where we want to, we want to numb ourselves to our, our true suffering. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I'm, I have not felt shame in a long time until a couple of days ago. And I saw something online with family, with several family members. And I was immediately hit with it. And it was, it was like, no, get that off of me. I don't want to feel that. That's not me. That's not my decision. That's with them. 
I'm okay here. But it took me a while to really kind of navigate those waters. What do you, where does it land for you? Like in your body? What, what happens when you feel shame? Panic. A lot of time it's hard to breathe. And then Mm -hmm. I carry a lot of it in my, in my right shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, my massage there, I had no clue. And my massage therapist actually told me about 20 years ago, Terry, you're carrying your stress in your in upper right quadrant. And so she knows to work. It's so, it's so funny. She'll, I'll get in like this last time I went in, she said, wow, you must've had a pretty level month. You're, and I'm like, yeah, it was pretty level <laughs> for the most part. But one of the things I want to highlight, though, that you're talking about, Terry, is body work. Like a lot of, you know, when you think about the field of psychiatry, a lot of what we focus on is the mind, right? Mm -hmm. We focus on the intellectual. So whether it's prescribing medications or talk therapy and what that does for people who have childhood trauma and complex PTSD is it sometimes can split the body and the mind where we're not focusing enough on the body. Wow. You know, because the body is remembering, this is why Bessel van der Kolk's book is called The Body Keeps the Score. The body is not going to forget that. And so one of the things I've been talking to in in my own practice and even in my own life is is that integration of how do we integrate body and mind. And I think to, you know, to truly be a wounded healer, you cannot, you can't have psyche without soma. You have to have the two together. Mm-hmm. And you have to be trying to bring them together, which the best definition I heard is the window of tolerance for trauma is when you can think and feel at the same time. If you think about that, like, even as I'm saying that, if you think about that, honestly, like when I'm thinking, I'm usually not feeling, or if right. I'm feeling, sometimes I'm not thinking, mm-hmm. but to do the both together that's actually quite a narrow window for a lot of people who have complex PTSD. It is. It's like juggling. And it's what I avoided for so many years. You know, I avoided, I was numbing. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to feel what was inside of me. So I'm taking care of all of these kids, homeschooling, helping run the business. And then I'm like, a shopping addict, all of these ended up with, you know, self, um, self-harm, all sorts of things. So I wouldn't have to feel, and with the self-injury, I find that, that interesting in that I didn't, I was in my forties. I had no clue what was going on. And I was in Las Vegas. I was in a huge, huge fight with my husband and I started to scratch my arms. I'm like, what the heck is that about? I'm um, replacing you know, or, or displacing, I guess, the emotion, the feelings of that emotion to something I can see. Well, a lot of people that I've treated who cut have told me how good it feels. Mm-hmm. That it's such a release and that sometimes they get into, into feeling states that are so toxic for them that the only thing that will make them feel better is, is, is cutting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that speaks to how hard it is to, to tolerate certain emotional states, just to, just to physically like 
live breath to breath, right? Like, right. Um, and, you know, one of the things I really admire about you is how you were able to be an advocate for your kids at the same time that you were going through your own mental health struggles. I mean, I really want you to talk to your guests about how hard that is because we know the mental health of parents mm-hmm. who have children with mental health issues mm-hmm. suffers. Mm-hmm. It, I can look back now and see that it was a distraction. It destroyed me. It, yeah. I felt when I ended up leaving my husband, I felt like there were claws at my back. And I, like a flame was at my back and I could not get away from it. It was like, I I kept running this way and that way and every way, but I couldn't get away because it was inside of me. Mm. And that's, I think, when I started to feel things and I held it together until my parents died, which I thought was interesting because I was a scapegoat child for one. And I was continually trying to be the perfect daughter in the eyes of my parents. So I, how could I break if they were going to witness what happened? So the mm-hmm. timing of that has always been really interesting to me, that it was about seven or eight months after my father died that it came to me being hospitalized. Terry, you've had such a rough road. And then with, with Joshua's passing and the way that that all happened, I mean, you know, talk me through how you got through those early days, you know, after you found out. Well, because you're still here. So you like the fact that you're still here. And that you're able to turn this into a podcast that others can learn from. Like, I I want to learn from you. How did you do that? Well, Saskia, you know, I think it would have been a lot different had it not been such a long journey with Joshua. It was a 28-year journey with Joshua. And the night the police showed up, my other son, Michael, came downstairs and He just flipped on my lights. (laughs) I was like going to kill him. He's like, mom, mom, look at me. There are two police officers here. You need to come talk to them. And I'm still trying to get it together. And I'm looking at his face and I knew it was one or two of two things. Either Joshua had severely or mortally injured someone or Joshua was no longer. And as I I went up the stairs, I'm stealing myself for what the police are going to tell me. And it was, ma'am, you need to sit down. I'm like, I don't need to sit down. I know what you're going to say. Just tell me what happened. No, you need to sit down. (laughs) So, So they, I remember them telling me, and what I really remember not really feeling for me, I think, because I was, and I think in a lot of ways I am still numb. Mm-hmm. My nephew started getting on my social media and the the um, town hall that I was on talking about 
look at her. She's not crying. She's, you know, all of this. She just wants fame. Fame. I don't care about fame. I want people not to have to do this with my son. And I was thinking, I'm numb. I'm numb. I was numb that night. And I, I listened to him. I went back to bed, went to sleep. The next morning I got up and I made a video because I wanted people, people to see the raw emotion that came out. And I was crying through that, but a lot of it, I kind of held it together, but it started to come out. Here we are almost 18 months later and it started to come out. You know, it's one of those things. Okay. I know like when my mother died, I've got to get there. I've got to get clothes. I need to be with my dad. I need to help him do this. You start thinking ahead. You go on autopilot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with Joshua, there was a lot of anger directed towards the city of Portland and Oregon in general. I really felt that they let him down and also mm -hmm. through transi transition projects who promised me he would be made a priority because for years he had checked all the boxes of needing to be made a priority. Well, I was, I was really numb for a long time. Now the way it's coming out is I can't, I have, well, I should say I have a very hard time when I see the tents, which I was down in the midst of weekly for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now it's a, it's, um, it's close my eyes and block it out, which is the exact opposite of what it should be. But I'm seeing my son. I read his medical reports and I get to places I can't go any further. Yeah. Because I don't want to see what the next, morning? what was our, that? Our homeless rate increased 23% in the last three years. Oh gosh in Oregon. I mean, it's really, it's just really staggering. It's horrifying. It's so staggering, Terry. It's absolutely horrifying. Other cities of our size have had like a 1% increase, 2% increase, 23%. Why do you think that is? Well, the article, this was in the Oregonian this morning, the article points out, and I think this is like one of the, you know, when I, when, when I talk to activists who are really, you know, in, in this field, in the field of houseless advocacy, what they will say is it's the rent prices, right? Like it's the lack of affordable housing for some, you know, and a lot of times that gets skipped over in these debates mm -hmm. and people focus on the drug addiction or they focus on you know, the problematic behaviors that they don't like, or they focus on the tents, but they don't focus on the root causes, which is like, we don't have enough housing in Portland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is why I love, you know, what Governor Kotek has, has made as her mission, which is like, houselessness is a crisis, like right. declaring it a crisis right away, because absolutely it is. Anyone who lives in the vicinity of downtown can tell you or, or East side or, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, everyone's pretty much aware now that we're in a crisis. Um, right. but I don't feel as qualified to talk about that because I'm not in like in the field of, of houselessness, but what I can right. tell you from living downtown and working downtown, my office has been downtown for 18 years is that 
you don't have to be an expert to know that it's getting worse. You can see no. it with your own eyes. <laughs> right. You know, and, right. and I see the sweeps that are going on. I mean, I walk by them every day, Terry. And what doesn't make sense to me about this policy is it's not solving anybody's crisis. It's just moving them on to the next location and taking away their valuable belongings, including sometimes medications, mm -hmm. including things that they need, you know, and um, we need, we need longer term solutions. I mean, it's just very clear as a mental health advocate that that's and and for me, when I'm, when I'm in those rooms advocating, I'm also advocating for the people themselves to be speaking, mm -hmm. you know, and this is what a lot of, um, houseless advocates will say is like, how many people at the table here have experienced houselessness? Usually it's the people making decisions who they were privileged. We we've not experienced houselessness. Mm -hmm. That's why people like you need to be at the table. Well, you know, it's, it's such a, for me, I'm coming at it with our root cause. Joshua had a home to be in. It was his mental illness that could not be controlled. Yeah. And a state or state policies and fear of providers, you know, we have such a high barrier or excuse me, high bar in Oregon to have someone involuntarily committed. I think That's only 2% of people in the state hospital are there for their mental health needs. The others are there for the justice system. Mm-hmm. Joshua clearly, I mean, he's, here's a kid, and I, I've talked about this before. Um, he really felt, he knew his girlfriend's head had been taken off by ISIS and OHSU had put it back and she was fine. He was, I had this like magic app on my phone where I'm scanning doctors and nurses and before he would speak with them. And in his paperwork, it says psychotic, delusional, paranoid, schizophrenic, autistic, bipolar, mood disorder, cannot think rationally, yet they want him to have autonomy. How? Is it compassionate to let him lay out there on the street the way I found him when I saw him last? He was covered with feces and filth, and he, had inf he was infected from head to foot. He probably at that time weighed about 135 pounds, and he was generally about 185. Whoa. Yeah. And Terry, when he was on his medications, would those delusions go away, or were they always there? After, he wouldn't take, this is the thing with Joshua. If he had something in his mind, this is the autistic part, if he had something in his mind like, ibuprofen causes liver cancer he wouldn't take ibuprofen he mm -hmm. wouldn't take tylenol mm -hmm. his talk screens were clean for years until he was told that if he took meth he could stay up and he could protect his belongings which were continually stolen i don't think when i was looking through everything even though they diagnosed him with everything Nothing was ever prescribed for him for a mood disorder or a psychiatric disorder that I saw. You know, that's an, 
I don't think he would have taken it. And that's part of paranoid schizophrenia is a part of the disease is you get to a place where I don't need this anymore. Had he been properly medicated, my son would be alive today. He would be a chef by day playing music at night. But that wasn't, that wasn't the way that the government saw it. And your, your plan is to play some of his music for us, right? I, don't you have a memorial coming up where? I'm trying to, um, to do that. And I have some musician friends that are going to help me. I don't have the masters, but if they can help me from the recordings I have, someone wants to put like a baseline in and others want to do like cover his music. And the other night I, I was coming home from, um, a photo shoot. I was shooting a band and I was coming home and Joshua's music came up on my playlist and it was, it was like, wow, wow. So much talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was hard. And after his music, I just found this was, was interesting. After his playlist ended, Josh Groban singing Starry Night came on, or Vincent. And I listened to that, and I just, still, there are no tears because I'm still numb. But I listen to each and every word and the line that gets me is, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. I think um, one of the things that struck me so much about your town hall, Terry, is the fact that he did have a family who could house him. Mm-hmm. You know, and so many people on our street today don't. They don't. And the fact that you were there and involved and looking for him and like tracking him down and you know communicating with people about him just speaks so much to the dysfunction that's going on in our systems of care Mm -hmm. that even with a advocate, fierce advocate mama bear, you couldn't get it done Mm -mm. to get him housed, you know? And, and that's why I wanted you to have my, my friend Crystal Delahanty on who's, who's doing houseless advocacy um, out at Lentz Park because she's breaking, busting through some of those barriers mm-hmm. and she'll, and, and she will be able to tell you some success stories, but it's very hard to bust through those barriers, especially when you have someone like Joshua who, you know, he was violent in your home. That's why he couldn't live there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so brave of you to tell people that on TV. Um, because the reality is I don't think a lot of people understand like true persistent mental illness that, you know, that that can happen, that families get alienated from their loved one because the delusion become, they become incorporated into the delusion. Right. And like right. the fact that you had to prove to him that you weren't part of ISIS every time mm-hmm. and you had to like scan on the app, you know, that's very, um, that's a really scary thing to live with. And I mean, and you have trauma from that probably also. Yeah. There, it was, I slept with a revolver under my pillow. Holy moly, Terry. Locked my doors. Uh, All the girls had to get their doors, locks on their doors. And, oh my gosh, I was furious. Um, 
during the last few years, a couple of the kids have spoken up and a couple of other people that have known what had gone on. And the older kids in the group, when I would leave, when Joshua's dad and I would leave on the weekend to go like to Starbucks, they would move all the furniture in our living room. They would ring the dinner bell. They would throw pick Joshua and another kid and throw them in the ring and make them fight. Joshua was locked in closets. Joshua was locked on the deck. Joshua was picked on. He was tormented by his older siblings. That infuriates me that they could have done that and been so heartless. And yeah, Joshua was scary. I he could he could have killed me. He had me. I remember the first time that it was really um in my mind I was thinking I have to win this altercation because if I don't win, it's going to happen worse next time. And I did. I was able to keep him off of me long enough for someone else to come and get him. And then we ended up in the hospital later on on yet another attack with a huge clay like an art piece he came at me and it's he was he that was his um that's what he was gonna do that was his intent was to make sure I was no longer living and at that point there were three people that pulled him off of me yet you know I would hear the other kids mock him and call him names and his dad even I had a thing with, oh, it's not autism, it's just rebelliousness. It's not autism, it's being self-willed. It's like, no, this is autism, damn it. My kid is sick. I love this boy. Joshua, I, I think you knew Joshua was adopted. He was adopted at birth. I didn't know that. We didn't know the mental struggles his birth mother went through because they had not yet manifested. He, she was just 15. So mm. they didn't manifest for several years. And, you know, we were kind of on our own trying to get this all figured out with him. And um, through it all, one thing I can say, I did my best. Yeah, there were times when I couldn't. But when I did, I did the best I could. I had him. Have you heard of uh, Dr. Charlene Sabin? No. She is a pediatric, um, sort of like a forensic psychiatrist. And she's Joshua. She's just like at the top of the list. She's amazing. She saw him or he saw her for years, several times a month. And then we also were seeing a Dr. Mark Weinrot a couple of times a week. Um, and this is, he was in therapy for so long. And so they knew everything was documented how he could turn on a dime. And it was scary, but the whole time I kept seeing Joshua like cloaked in this, like this egg, this, like this big black bird had him covered, but my sweet little boy was in there and I can look at his pictures and smile because he's been set free. That's one of the things when the, when the police told me it was like October 8th when they got to my house to let me know one of the first thoughts I what I had 
which probably seems weird to some people, was he's not going to have to go through another cold winter. Hmm. Terry, I have a I have a really hard time, like, and I'm sure your your guests do too, imagining Joshua making it on his own in the streets. Like, I just like hearing you describe this behavior and what you had to live with. I I cannot imagine the agony you must have been in knowing that he's out on the streets by himself in this delusional state where he just really needs help. Mm-hmm. He needed he needed our help. And I mean, that's what really got across to me in the town hall is how you were able to communicate to people that the the way we've gotten in our crisis and the lack of empathy that we have societally towards people who are houseless is is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just we can do better. We have to do better. Um, and we have to, we have to love harder. I, I, I just don't know how to say it any different. Like as my friend Crystal will say, is like, we have to move love forward in a way that's practical, like, mm-hmm. you know, and humane, like, um, I just can't imagine him on the streets. It, it just is like so heartbreaking for me. It was tormenting. It was absolutely tormenting. Now I was able to bring him home for periods of time he would come home for three or four days and then he would get to a point to where he had to get out and he would leave. And, you know, in the times that he was home, we had a good time. We had a lot of fun. You know, I take him out to dinner. He was, he was coherent. He was lucid. He knew what was going on. And then he'd start feeling the voices and he would, he would have to leave. Not that I made him leave. He just felt that he needed to leave. And I found, I found this interesting in speaking with someone that is an outreach worker. Joshua never slept in front of shelters. He slept in front of other tents, other places he would sleep where he couldn't be found or bothered. But he was found in front of the Salvation Army. And this one of Joshua's biggest things was, I don't want to hurt my mom. I know I've hurt her in the past. I don't want to hurt her anymore. And his feelings were Joshua, I think Joshua's intent was to take his life. The video cameras show clearly as soon as he got under the blankets and situated, there was no more movement Mm. until he was discovered. And my friend said it was staged so you wouldn't have to suffer. He said he saw it all the time. But, you know, he was red flagged from every shelter because of his rage problems. People that knew he had a problem with rage would antagonize him. And I think Joshua just got to the point he couldn't he couldn't do it anymore. And when I looked at his paperwork and all the times he went in and asked for help. And they released him to home, i.e. the streets. It's, it's infuriating to me because I know my son. I see his pictures. I know he graduated with a culinary degree from Job Corps, and he loved to bake. And then his music, his music was really his therapy. And hello, I'm part of the Cascade Blues Association. I'm a member there. 
a lot of my friends are musicians that love his music and they would have allowed him to play. He could have played mm -hmm. seven nights a week if he wanted to and baked during the day and he would have been okay. Mm -hmm. But he was not given that chance. Mm -hmm. And that one thing I don't beat myself up about is there are other things that I can feel guilty about being a mom. I did my best with Joshua that I could. And his dad sent me a text a couple of weeks after Joshua died that said, out of, out of everyone in the family, you are the one that loved Joshua. You made sure he was okay, that he was taken care of. Yeah, mm. it was hard to do because he was a real pain in the butt a lot of the times. But that doesn't change the fact that it was my job to take care of my son. So, and I think that's part of my whole thing. I think, you know, if I take my tenacity and look at it, that's what got me through my childhood mm -hmm. and my adolescent years. Mm -hmm. And it got me through Joshua. It got me through all the other kids and all of this stuff. And I forgot where I was going. Oh, um. I was on this constant burn. If I didn't have that, things would have split up so far earlier in the game. I still don't know what I was going to say, but oh, that's fine. That's no, I, I think it's a good segue into, into something that, you know, came from earlier in our conversation about complex trauma and developmental trauma and healing is that healing can't happen when you don't have a roof over your head. It's no. pretty hard to heal. You know, this is one of the things they talk about in trauma. You can't heal from trauma if the trauma is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things I see in you and, you know, I saw it in you, I don't 15 years ago when I mm -hmm. met you, um, is, is that resilience, you know, is that post-traumatic growth that you have been able to take your trauma and turn it into helping others, you know, and yes, some of the, sometimes the trauma repeats and it goes on and life will do that to us, right? We can't mm -hmm. press pause on stress or on, on trauma happening, but we can, we can learn and grow from it. And, you know, there's healing in that. I, I really, um, I think that trauma sometimes gets like, in, in our, in our culture is being thrown around now as like a, like a, my trauma is worse than your trauma kind of thing. Like right. the trauma. And, and I always tell people, no one wins the trauma Olympics. Like, no. you know, I this love is that not phrase. a competition of like who has the worst trauma. Right. You know, and we all like, but, but there need to be resources for everyone to heal. And so for someone like Joshua to be cut out, um, is not, it's not just. No, it's not. And we have a very unequal mental health system. And that's one of the reasons I became an activist is that I, um, you know, most of the patients that I see have insurance. And, and I just started to feel that, especially as the pandemic hit, I, I could not live with myself without using my skills to treat people and to help people who, who didn't, who don't have the resources. So that's right. why I've been scaling myself up in all these different modalities, 
you know, doing um, immigration, you know, um, asylum evals for women who have traveled from Guatemala and Nicaragua and, you know, are claiming asylum under the Violence Against Women Act. I mean, I've just been doing as as much as I trying to help my colleagues in nursing on the front lines of the pandemic, like, you know, a lot of it around women, but mm-hmm. a lot of it also around just people who are under-resourced, um, right. families who have experienced, you know, relentless community violence. Um, I was on a podcast with Lori Palmer, whose son was, was killed in, you know, in gun violence. And the amount of mothers that we have in this city who have gone through things like you and Lori is just not acceptable. We've got to stop it. And it's going to, I think it's going to be grassroots movements and grassroots women coming together. Well, I think it has to be because government has already shown us what they're willing to do. They're willing to let our kids die. And that's what some of the younger activists say about climate change. They say the government isn't going to save us. It's going to be people that 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 come up with the solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's something... why I'm so honored to be with you today, Terry. I mean, I just I'm like our our journey coming full circle like this. I could yes. have never dreamed it in a million years. Never. I never would have either. <clears throat> I never would have. And I'm so glad that you figured out. You know, because I was starting to think, okay, it has to be with me, but where? But then I saw so many different people. It's like, where do you go? What do you do? What, you know, what, what's happening? Um, it, it, it's, and that's part of, I think that you said it, that's part of trauma. It is. And you know, and I think that one of the things I've learned with, with my own trauma and advocating for my kids and my patients and, you know, these more, sometimes when you're overwhelmed, it's mm-hmm. okay to just take a day or two and cry. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell, sometimes I tell the moms that they're like, but I got to get this and I got to get this appointment. I'm like, nope, today is a go in the bathroom and lie on the floor and cry day. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, today you can't do that because- right. Sometimes it's so overwhelming that you're just like, I can't, I, I can't even do it. So what I tend to do for myself is when, when I feel that overwhelmed, I just, I just let it be for, you know, 24 to 48 hours. And then I start making lists of like, what are all my options? You know, Mm -hmm. what are, what are the things I haven't thought of? And the other thing I really encourage people to think about as an advocate is like, what are the things outside of systems that make quality of life better? So for instance, for my kids, like I ended up getting them a dog mm-hmm. um, because I just realized to have a furry animal come greet you at the door and waggle at you every day. That loves you. That's no a real what. mental health improvement. Yes. It's my service you know? dog, Karma. I, exactly. I, with her, I really have come to understand how people can get so attached Yep. To their pets. I just, she, I, I'll tell her this. She's, she just looks at me like, are you going to give me a treat? But <laughs> it's like, you have healed my soul. Yeah. You have healed me, karma. You have. And she's just. I love that name. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it fits her perfectly. It fits her perfectly. But yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I would watch Joshua when he would get overwhelmed and he would bake. He would bake and he would bake and he would bake and he would bake and he would bake. Or he would, this is one thing that drove me out of my freaking mind. 
he would decide to organize. So he would <laughs> empty all of my my cabinets, the pantry, all the storage <laughs> under the and put it all on the island. Our our island's like seven by seven or something. And I would walk in the house and it would just be this huge mess. Moving day. I'm like, oh, I'm going to my room and locking my door. <laughs> I can't handle this. But that calmed him and I would come out mm -hmm. and everything was perfect. It was mm -hmm. absolutely perfect. So learning things that would calm him helped me. And you were talking earlier about having to integrate the body. And that's one thing I had to learn is to sit and really become mindful and close my eyes. What can I hear? What can I taste? What do I feel? Mm -hmm. What's around me? Mm -hmm. Just to sort of bring me back out of that panic mode. Yeah. That was hard. That was hard for me to learn. That was really hard for me to learn. But, you know, I go back, your, your question is haunting about if Joshua had been on his meds, what the difference would be. Well, I think that I, I you know, I, of course, as an activist, like I asked that with kind of like a, you know, secondary motive, which is that in New York, they have an outpatient commitment law. So they have... Um, and unfortunately, I'm going to forget his name, but there was a mentally ill man who pushed Kendra in front of a train. And Kendra's this law. Forced, right. It forced Kendra's law. Her family advocated for a change in the law so that in New York State, you can involuntarily outpatient commit people to taking their medication. So mm -hmm. if we had something like that in Oregon, you know, what it would look like for someone like Joshua is that he would have to be coming to appointments and be on his medication. And if you, you know, I don't know exactly how the law in New York reads, but if you don't do that and you've been, you know, you, you've been, um, I think it, it's a judge, you know, obviously it's a legal process to put someone mm -hmm. through this. And oftentimes, you know, when I was working in inpatient hospitals, this is another difficulty, Terry, and, and you can speak to this too, is that how do you prove in a court that somebody is a danger to themselves or to others, oftentimes it involves having family members testify. But as you know, that's bad for your relationship with them to testify mm -hmm. against them, mm -hmm. right? And so I was in that situation a couple of times when I was an inpatient psychiatrist where we were doing these outpatient or you know commitment hearings in, in, on the psychiatric ward for people who would be going to the state hospital and I would have to testify, you know, as to their, their behavior. Um, and it's so damaging to a treatment relationship or to a family relationship to testify against someone. It's, mm -hmm. it's incredibly damaging, mm -hmm. um, which is why as an outpatient psychiatrist, I try to never get involved in legal proceedings because I tell people like, this is not good for your therapeutic alliance with me. Like you don't mm -hmm. want to see cross-examined. The one time I've done it on behalf of someone was um, a woman in my practice who was actually arrested in her own home and taken into a police station naked, Terry. And so I, I testified on her behalf, but 
she did not end up winning her case. And no surprise to you, like that legal proceeding was very damaging to her. So one Mm -hmm. of the things like, one of the things that I think needs to be in, in the discussion about this is like, yes, we need to do better, but we also need to do better in a way that's therapeutic and that's not going to be punitive. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I've seen from both working in the state hospital and reading about what's happening there now is that involuntary commitment is not a panacea either, right? Like just sending someone to a facility for six months and saying, get mentally healthy doesn't really heal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> surprise, right. surprise. Yeah. Right? Um, right. So our, our treatment, you know, we're, we're really talking on such a like big level. And this is part of why I've become an activist is that the systems that we use to treat people can also harm people. And you've seen that up close and personal. And oh my like, gosh, yes. You know, so I just read, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'll stop talking after this, but I just read in our American Psychiatric newspaper that comes out every month, um, our ethics chair wrote an editorial saying, we shouldn't have to have advocates that protect patients from us. We should be the advocates. Psychiatrists should be the advocates, right? But this is the state that our field has gotten to where we're now having to have advocates to advocate against against their psychiatrists. And that's why I'm such a fierce advocate for my patients. Like, I don't want my patients to have to um, feel like I'm not on their side. Right. And when it comes to something like involuntary commitment, it's such a tricky issue. But I, I think my, my, where I, you know, fall on this personally is I would love to see something done more outpatient. Mm -hmm. Um, because until we fix our problems at our state hospital, now you also know that Multnomah County does not enforce danger to self or others as criteria for involuntary, or I mean, sorry, does not enforce inability to care for oneself. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Right. So there's, for your guests, there's three criteria for involuntary commitment, danger to self, danger to others, and inability to care for oneself. For as long as I've been practicing psychiatry in Multnomah County, we have not used the third criteria for involuntary commitment. And, you know, I think that inability to care for oneself when you're seeing someone like Joshua with feces in their hair, mm-hmm. um, that's, it's really hard, you know, and I know it's hard for the judges. I know it's hard for law enforcement. I know it's hard for housing advocates. Um, I don't have answers, Terry. I, I, what I would like to see is, you know, us have better discussions, um, with people like you who, who have actually, and people who have lived experience in the system. So like Mm -hmm. the mental health Alliance, who's, you know, currently in, in, you know, advocating for, um, for people with lived experience. Um, those are the people that need to be deciding these things, not people like me who have, you know, um, who, who, who treat it. We don't, we don't live in the system. Right. Right. It's difficult. It's very difficult. I wanted to circle back to something you said about when you were talking about testifying against a family member. We had a family meeting, which we were really big on family meetings here. And there was a specific way they were done. And 
my husband called a family meeting and all the kids were up there and I don't remember exactly how it went, but he, he was talking to the kids about you're lazy. You're giving your mother a hard time. You're not respecting her. You're fighting with each other. And he went through this whole list and he said, there's one of us that makes living in this house more difficult than any other child. Yet he is the only one that's trying to do better. Who wants to name him? The kids were petrified. And they're all sort of trying, they're trying to avoid looking at Joshua. And Joshua's head dropped and he started to cry and he said, it's me. I know it's me. And I try my best every day to do better, but I can't, I can't win. Mm. So he knew that was, that was what was so hard. I, is he knew he was different and that was the hardest thing for me as a mom. Had he been more incapacitated and not known he was different? Would that have been easier? I don't know. I wasn't dealing with that. But I was dealing with a son that knew he was different and nothing he could do would make it better. Mm-hmm. That was heartbreaking. And now I was thinking about this coming home the other night from that, that gig I was telling you about. And um, I miss Joshua, but what I feel mainly for him now is peace and happiness and thankful that he is no longer having to deal with what he had to deal with. Far different from a grief with my mother being killed. This is a child that is no longer having to deal with society and all of the mental illness that he had. And that that's a really, that should make me feel guilty. You know, society would say, well, you should feel guilty for feeling happiness that your son is no longer here. Well, that's not quite what I said. I, 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 I'm happy that he is not dealing with the things that he had to deal with. But see, I hear that so differently, Terry, and I, that just breaks my heart because to me, it speaks to the amount of suffering that you've had and that he had and that your relief comes from that it's over. But from somebody like me who went into this profession to help people live with mental illness, I hear that and my heart just crushes into a thousand pieces because I know we can do better. I know that someone like him deserves a life without that kind of suffering. Like mm-hmm. to me, like I hear that and I hear it very differently. I, I hear it as that is a failure yes. of a system to deliver a humane life to someone who deserves to live humanely yes. and with dignity. Mm-hmm. And what, what we gave him was not dignified no. and it was not humane. It wasn't in any way, and 
And I don't know how to make it better. I don't have all the, all the solutions, Terry. I want to be really clear that I don't think yeah. that I'm, you know, like some kind of expert in that. I just know that when I became an activist, the difference between somebody who's an activist and somebody who's not is somebody who's willing to stick their neck out mm-hmm. for people that they'd never met before. Right. right? And like, I, I actually did know Joshua through you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me to have it now have my activism becoming full circle and be talking to you about somebody that I actually had heard of, mm-hmm. it's like, to me, it's even more sign from the universe of like, this is why I'm doing this work. This is why yeah. I've got to continue because unless people like me speak up from within our profession, I mean, there's two ways to change systems, right? There's from the inside and from the outside. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the inside game and the outside game, it's going to take both right? to get that kind of systemic change where our kids can have hope for a better future. We're going to need both kinds of change. Right. Um, and, you know, one thing that does give me hope is that my kids generation. So, my kids are teenagers now and, you know, the 20 somethings that I meet, they have a different sensibility about mental health than what you and I grew up with. They really do. Right. Had I been born in the eighties and nineties, um, early two thousands, my parents would have (laughs) had had to deal with CPS I mean, they don't Absolutely take kindly they to people taking Hot Wheel tracks, putting them together, and smacking their kids until they bleed. No, or telling a three-year-old, I'm going to put you in the trash can, right. and guess what? They don't speak English, so you can't have any help. Right, exactly. That's not, that's abuse. Right. That's abuse. It is, and but for me, it was normal. It was normal then, and it, you know, one of the things that really hit me was, the trauma my parents went through that brought them into that cycle that gave me the cycle. Therapy was taboo. Getting help was taboo because you were crazy. What did you do? You drank it, you drank and you sucked it up. So every one of my family was alcoholics <laughs> pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there is nothing taboo with therapy nothing but a lot of people still think that i don't know saskia um well here's what i want to tell people you know i i because i do want to leave things on a hopeful note i mean i do think that we don't have the ability to control what happens to us as kids right but we do have the ability to change as a, a once once we're in positions where we're no longer you know when we get to make our own agency is that you can make different choices and like your journey is one that i think is a wonderful example of somebody who's you know through a lot of hard work in therapy mm-hmm. and in getting help from allied professionals you're healing you're feeling better i am most days i mean this last Friday with my therapist, he got on, you know, I, I've had my therapist, a psychiatrist for 11 years now, and he's on and, and he's like, what's wrong? And I love that. I love that he can look at me and say, what's going on? 
and I feel comfortable enough to tell him, I don't know, but there's this feeling and I don't like it and I've had, I haven't had it in a long time and da 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 and he's like, well, he knows me well enough to ask the questions and to prod me. That's one thing I had with therapists before I had a hard time with. It was, okay, just talk to me. But there was no interaction. And he gives me that interaction and he, he, he's gotten to where he'll say, well, have you thought this way? Have you thought this way? Um, I want to check with you on this. Which way would you choose here? You know, he can't really lead me. I've got to make those discoveries on my own. But it was the first time in a long time he was like, what's going on, Terry? I still don't know. <laughs> Comes and goes. I think it was close to my mother's birthday and, you know, really thinking about Joshua and a lot of different things. Um, but at the same time, I don't cry anymore because if I cry, I don't stop. And, you know, the other thing about healing is it's not linear. Yeah. There's going to be, there's going to be setbacks, right? There's going to be bad days. Mm -hmm. And I think that. that's one thing I constantly remind people is that especially when you have a string of good days, it's really hard to have a bad day. Right. And, and it puts people into a lot of fear about that they're never going to get better or, but you know, one of the things about mental wellness is that it's, it's, it's an ongoing process. You don't ever reach it. Right. <laughs> you know? It's not like you achieve it and like accomplishment unlocked, never have to work at it again. Right. Although there are those accomplishments that we can unlock, but the journey, it's a, it's a journey. My dad used to tell me all the time, as soon as you have it figured out, you just really need to die <laughs> because there's, there's, <laughs> there's always something to learn. There's always something to unlock. There's always, you know, some place to go. And he was so right because when you're done, what really, if you get to that point, what is there to do? And I think I was at that point several times where I just thought there's no, there's no way I can, I can make it, but I did. And there's hope there, there is hope. I'm so, I'm so glad that, um, our paths reconnected and oh, I'm gosh, so sorry that too. had to be in such a traumatic way, you know, but I'm just, um, I'm so grateful that we came back into each other's lives and that you know, I can help support you in your advocacy. It's just such an honor to be your guest. Well, it's an honor to have you. And I, you know, I just, I have been so excited for this. Just like you said, to have you back in my life. When you saw me at a part when I was totally unraveled mm -hmm. and breaking. I mean, I was broken glass walking. And now those edges have been rounded Every once in a while, there'll be a sharp one that comes out, but they're all pretty much, you know, it feels like being washed on the shore, the glass of, you know, the sea glass. I don't glass. think a lot of people know, Terry, how hard it is to go to a psychiatric hospital. I mean, first of all, they're locked facilities. So I think a lot of people don't understand that when you go to a psychiatric unit, you're locked in at night. Like yeah. you can't 
I mean, yes, you can leave, you can sign yourself out, but not if you're there involuntarily. No, exactly. Just the fact that the doors are locked, you know, I think that really affects people psychologically. And Mm -hmm. then the other thing of not knowing who you're with, right? So you're with a roommate oftentimes, or you're, and so those milieus are sometimes not therapeutic. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have told me that that the experience of even going to a psychiatric hospital is traumatic for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I tell you, I, I was in for about 10 to 12 hours, but I was on a, I was on a hold. They were not going to let me out. And I didn't know how the system worked then. And I was like trying to get a hold of my attorney. I told my husband to call my attorney. My attorney's like, there's nothing I can do. And the psychiatrist came in and he told me the first thing he said, when I had come in the night before, I I was pretty drugged with Ambien. I mean, I had taken like four Ambien. That's, you know, nothing really, except it put me in a hallucinogenic, a, a, a hallucinogenic type state that was just weird and um but he said even though you had no idea what was going on your story never changed it never changed you do not belong here but you've got to get through these three other people before you get out I was scared to death I was afraid of the patients. I would leave my room and then something would happen. It's like, Ooh, I'm going back to my room. And it was, it was very, very traumatic. And my current psychiatrist has said, I don't ever want you going to the hospital unless you talk to me first. And I love that about him. And I think you knowing him, you could see how he would say something like that. Mm-hmm. It was, um, he's, he's listed as an ICE number in my, in my phone for that very reason. And, and I don't say that to say that no one should go. I'm just saying he knows my story well enough to know he needs to talk to me first. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy, and I'm 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 so happy we have found the key of where we know each other from. <laughs> that has been on my mind since the town hall. So let me ask you, for people that want to know more about you, I know you closed down your social media. Do you have a website? Do you have anywhere people you know, can? I- I don't have a website You're right now. You're kind of on so the down low right now, right? I am. Um, I, uh, unfor- after 18 years in private practice, I um, my practice is quite full. And um, my activism plate is quite full. One thing I'm really excited about doing, Terry, is I've been doing these trainings through Vibrant Emotional Health, which is they run our 988 crisis line mm-hmm. um, nationally. And uh, Vibrant has, uh, I'm on their crisis emotional care team, um, which is a disaster psychology team 
of um, providers that we deploy to different situations around the country for either, you know, environmental disasters or human caused disasters. And so they are contracting me as a trainer to work with frontline staff um, in hospitals. So right now I'm, I'm really focusing on doing these trainings for doctors and nurses. Um, That's wonderful. yeah, the first training I did with them is on workforce protection, on um, on uh, resilience, actually. And um, next month, I'll be rolling out stress first aid. And then uh, the month after that will be um, uh, violent patient workforce violence and combative patients. Because um, one of the things that I, I did in the pandemic is also train in uh, behavioral de-escalation. Mm-hmm. So I've been applying that in you know public settings. And um, so that that's coming up more and more, sadly, in um, hospital type settings, too. So mm-hmm. those trainings um, will be available through Vibrant. And if people who are listening want to um, get those trainings, they actually have a grant to provide them for free right now. Wow through the Brave of Heart Fund, um, and they uh, just need to contact Vibrant. Um, so that that's a super exciting thing that's happening. And then I will be moderating a roundtable discussion on burnout um, in the healthcare workforce for the Kaiser Permanente Journal. That journal um, is going to do a special edition on burnout, um, which is a form of they're actually, the World Health Organization has classified it as its own diagnosis now. So it's an ICD-11 code. It's a workplace, it's an occupational hazard of mm-hmm. work, of working in the pandemic. Um, so burnout applies to more than just healthcare workers. It's um, a syndrome that's kind of looks a lot like depression and looks a lot like trauma, but it's actually workforce related. Mm-hmm. And um, that journal edition will be open source. So people can look for that starting in June. Okay. Um, they are the most read medical journal in the world because they are free. Um, and so that, um, that discussion is going to involve, again, Vibrant and the 98 Crisis Line, but also the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with her story. She is an no. ER doctor. Um, who was on the front lines in New York City at the in the first wave of the pandemic, and she um, had to be hospitalized for what was now we know to be burnout, but they diagnosed her with depression. Unfortunately, Dr. Breen killed herself when she came out of the hospital. Oh. And so I'm working with her family foundation. They're going to be um, part of this panel discussion. Her sister and her brother-in-law started this wonderful foundation that's trying to raise awareness about, um, about these issues that are affecting our healthcare workforce because people are leaving, um, the healthcare field in droves. Um, so that's going to be a systemic issue for us. I mean, um, as a country, if we don't start addressing it. So that's, that's kind of where I'm focusing my activism right now and, um, we'll see where it leads. That's wonderful. Some, you're perfect, absolutely perfect for this. You know, I just, I worry about you and burnout because you and I, I Did kind that, of, been there, done that. Yeah. I, you and I, I feel my vibe with you. If you understand what I, I'm speaking about, sort of the tenacity and that I want to help sort of a, a thing. And, you know, you're talking about healthcare providers earlier and I just have to say, I've, 
I've said, you know, I've seen so many before I found my providers now, and they're just like, and I said something to my doctor the other day. It's like, you know, I always feel bad about bringing my problems to you. He's like, well, that's what I do. And he told, he always tells me about these cartoons, this lady's on the, the couch and the doctor's behind her. And she says, well, doc, you must have heard all this before. And you see the doctor going, <laughs> his hair all out like this. And um, I mean, I do. I feel horrible when I have to recite my story or tell them. I know I'm, I'm very responsible with it now. I, I, I can tell if it's a real mental health crisis or if it's just situational. And well, if it's one... something I need help with, you know, I don't, I'll tell them every single detail, but I still feel guilty. And my therapist said, Terry, but we learn to deal with that. But evidently not everyone does. Well, I'll, I'll tell you just from the, you know, it, the, the, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because actually one of the professions that they wrote about is um, psychotherapists and psychotherapists are experiencing a very high rates of burnout in the pandemic. Um, and, you know, some of that is, is what we're now learning to be something called vicarious trauma. So mm -hmm. se secondary traumatic stress. So in other words, hearing people's stories of trauma is also traumatizing. Yeah. It's a different kind of trauma. But the cumulative load of that, what I would tell you for myself, like the cumulative load of that in the activism I do, in the work that I do, in my, you know, my children's lives, like the cumulative load of that has gone up. And the numbers show like, you know, this recent article um, it, looking at nurses specifically, they estimate pre-pandemic, the global rate of burnout was 10%. What do you think it is now, Terry? I'm going to say maybe 45-ish percent. Oh my maybe? gosh. It's between 80 and 90. Oh my gosh. So that, it, like we've never historically, maybe in 1919 when they had Spanish influenza, maybe they saw this, but we've never in our gener in my generation and in the generation previous to us, we've never seen numbers like this. So one of the things, you know, one of the reasons this has become my passion work is because I did go through burnout myself. You know, one of my responses to the pandemic was this kind of trauma response of I have to save as many people as possible, mm -hmm. which, you know, when you look at the psychological disaster curve is what they call the acceleration part of it. Like you can mount this hero response, right? But then you get to a point where you go, and no amount of overworking is going to be able to mount a response. So then I crashed like everybody is doing now. And then you go into this other phase, which they call, you know, recovery, where you kind of go up and down. And so one of the things I've done in my own life is to really approach recovery. Like I've, I've changed my schedule. I'm taking more days off. You know, I'm going on. Um, I'm taking, I'm, I'm trying to in, like have more fun in my life because one of the things that went away in the pandemic is fun. Right. Right. We didn't right. have fun anymore. No. So, um, and you know, I think that sharing what I've learned about my own burnout mm -hmm. is so, um, 
restorative for me. It's really, it is so powerful that, that altruism. And I think that that's, that's why I recognize that in you too, Terry, like for, to be able to take the bad things that have happened to you and transmute them and use them to help others. That's, that's how society heals, right? This is like the core of it. Um, and obviously we don't want to do it to the point of martyrdom, um, right. which, you know, you can definitely see some people doing, mm -hmm. you know, you can definitely see some people giving to the point that they have nothing left to give anymore. And right. so, but the question really, I think facing us collectively as a society is how do we make this kind of, how do we make this sustainable for all of us? Right. How do we all thrive together? Because this inequity that we have going in mental health care, in medical care, in, you know, societal outcomes, like it's not sustainable. It's no. not fair that someone like Joshua, and this is what I feel kind of walking into work is like, it's not fair anymore for someone like Joshua to be living in a tent and for me to have all the food that, that I need. Right. Like I, and mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer to that is, but we have to do better. Right. Right. And we can't do better. I know we can do better. We Oregonians can. really care. We love hard. Mm -hmm. Very much so. But I, I think you're, you're back at the grassroots thing. And I think that's the only way it seems even possible, remotely possible to happen. People have to open no. their eyes and be aware of what's going on instead of I don't want to see it. I'm going to just go forward and um, don't worry about anything. I mean, there will always the, be people like that, but more yeah, people are becoming aware. I learned from the peace builders that um, I got to meet during the pandemic is that the time in Ireland that they call the troubles of, you know, this, the civil conflict in Dublin, um, the, the lore among the peace builders is the way that that finally resolved was not through formal negotiations, was not through legislation. It was through the mothers coming together and saying enough is enough. Wow. And what a powerful message that is for wow. us in our Who society stops? today, right? It was the mothers coming together and saying, we can fix this. We can solve this. These are mm -hmm. our children. We can do better. Right. Wow. That. Isn't that hopeful, Terry? It is. It is. It's very profound and it's very, it's, I think so many people are, well, if you don't have this degree, this degree, and this degree, well, you really can't do anything. Well, no, you just have to love mm -mm. and understand and want there to be a change for your kids and your grandkids and their kids. I'm teeing it up for my friend, Crystal, who's going to tell you her story mm -hmm. when she comes on and she's going to prove to you that I'm right. Because when you hear her story, she does not have the fancy degrees behind her name and she's making so much good change in our city. Mm -hmm. Yes. I cannot wait. I think I, I have her scheduled maybe next week, I think to come on to um, That's awesome. do the, the, pre stuff and I, I just cannot wait and I'm hoping to have her 
to get everything done before I leave for Europe. And so she can kind of inspire me on my way. Well, I'm, um, I am just so happy that we got to talk today. Thank you for, I'm so happy you came up to me. You know, I'm, I, (laughs) I came home that night and I'm like, how did she even remember me? I mean, it's, it's been, and I'm thinking, you know, from Joshua, how does, how do people remember me? Because I'm not anything. I'm nothing. Nobody, you know, here's this, this parental shame again. And my son said, mom, you're six feet tall. You have blonde hair and you have tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) But I told you this in our, in our email, our text exchange, you're in my heart. Yes, that's got to be it. That's I mean, like that. You were in my heart. I don't. I don't forget people. Mm-hmm. I know. I. I like. That's one of the things about. You know, I went into this field, um, to help people, and you know, I never forget. Um, I. I don't always go up to people first mm-hmm. because I want to respect their privacy. But in your case, Terry, because of what you had just shared with everybody, I just felt like. I just felt a tug on my heart to go up to you. And, you know, I could have easily ignored that, mm-hmm. but I just felt like I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I had walked away and not said hi to you. So and look at so what, glad. look at the good that's come out of that, you know? Yes. And so people should listen to their hearts more and, you know, say hi to that person. I mean, this is one thing you said on the town hall is like, you don't have to feed the houseless. Just say hi to them when you walk by just look them in the eye. Even that is enough of a change. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of empathy that we need is see them as a human, see them as another soul, another someone's child, someone's. And, and our secretary of state said that on the town hall, you know, see, see each other. Um, yeah, she said, um, everyone's somebody, somebody. I love that. Yes. I I like that. that. Because we, what we need really is a revolution of empathy. You know, mm-hmm. of if we can empathize better with each other, then we can heal a lot of these toxic divides. Oh, I sure hope so. We need it as a country, mm-hmm. as a world, as a city, even as families. Yes. Amen to that. Even as families. Well, it's we got to stop there because we just solved all the world's problems. We did. We did. <laughs> Yay. Where's my drum roll? Or do we want cheering? oh thank you so much terry oh thank you ah stop thank you saskia and hopefully this won't be the last time no you know have me back please i'm really excited to talk to crystal and i'm glad i have her on this schedule and yeah i would love for you to come back thank you so much okay it's a deal all right okay everyone thank you so much give saskia you know big kudos and just know what a wonderful wonderful person she is and to come up and say something to someone that you saw me I was like uh, I don't know I just appreciate it and I appreciate you so full circle I love it yep for sure well thank you have a great night, Terry. I will you as well. See you next time. Uh-huh. Okay, everyone. There you are. That was Saskia Hot Settler Lippy. Did I say I always wonder if I'm gonna say her name correctly or not? 
you can see how absolutely amazing she is. And I wish, I, check out, I'm going to try and put some links to what she was speaking of here so you can get more help and understand what she's speaking of a little bit more. She is just absolutely amazing. And I am so blessed that she, by the, by the stars and the fates and by everything that happened, that she was in that room that night of the town hall and was able to come back into my life. So that's it for today, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I wish you a wonderful, wonderful week ahead. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.